Welcome to the Open Book Unbound podcast. Hi, Marjorie. Hey, Claire. How are you today? I'm good, thanks. How are you? Good, thanks. What have you been up to so far? Anything useful? Well, I did sneak out early and pick the last of the strawberries in my little strawberry patch in the garden. And I was hoping to get some raspberries as well, but the crop has been ravaged by some squirrels who've somehow managed to remove the netting. The funny thing is that I've got two types of raspberries in my garden. I've got some yellow ones. Oh, lovely. um, And I've got some red ones. And the yellow ones were left by the whoever ravaged the patch. Only the red ones had been picked, so... I don't have a raspberry patch, as you know, because the last time I did have a raspberry patch, I took, picked them all off just before I left the house and put them in a Tupperware and put them in your freezer, and I believe they're still there. They are, though they're very tempting, so I would recommend, <laughs> especially at this time of year when I'm thinking raspberries and strawberries, I that you move fast. I'll leave them on the doorstep. <laughs> they're needing to be made into jam, but the place I've been wild swimming lately, one of the reservoirs near here, is laden with wild raspberries. So I haven't been missing my raspberry patch this year because I just every time I go swimming, I take a huge Tupperware and fill it with wild raspberries. I'm used to that in Scotland with brambles or blackberries, as we call them, but I'm not used to like a bounty of wild raspberries. It's amazing. Well, today we are looking at something, a different fruit, oranges, which are slightly out of season, but I keep eating them anyway. I wonder where they come from. We're going to be looking at the poem, The Orange by Wendy Cope, but then also one of our terrific commissions called Orange Peel by Sophie Law. Can't wait to get into that. We've been so lucky with these commissions. All the work is so varied and interesting and just tackles things in a completely different way. So there have been great fun. And we're going to finish up with a poem, A Birthday by Edwin Muir. Those two poems were selected by Sophie, so we can have the fun of trying to figure out why she's chosen them to go with this story. Will I get us started on the poem? Yeah. The Orange by Wendy Cope. At lunchtime, I bought a huge orange. The size of it made us all laugh. I peeled it and shared it with Robert and Dave. They got quarters, and I had a half. And that orange, it made me so happy, as ordinary things often do, just lately. The shopping, a walk in the park, this is peace and contentment. It's new. The rest of the day was quite easy. I did all the jobs on my list, and enjoyed them, and had some time over. I love you. I'm glad I exist. There's something about this poem that makes me smell like orange rind, you know, on your hands. You know, when you peel an orange and you get like, you can smell the orange on your skin. The little oranges that we get just now don't do that, but the big oranges do, don't they? Big oranges always remind me of my hockey playing days when on rotation, you used to have to take the halftime oranges when it was a home game and you had to take a bag for your team and a bag for the other team. And it's quite funny because my daughter is now in that sort of window. So I'm buying big oranges in a way that I didn't for a few years. I remember being offering to be the person to bring the oranges to your hockey match on your birthday, Claire. That's and right. rather than being told to bring the oranges and do the clipboarding as the non-sporty friend, I was required to play hockey, which was one of the most terrifying experiences of my life. You, you should mention, though, it was a hockey tournament that we were running for charity. I would have much preferred to bring the oranges. You did score the winning goal for your team, which won the entire tournament for them. I did, I did. <laughs> this poem, Big Oranges, always make me think of my dad because... 
the thing about Persians is that they have a very particular way of peeling fruit. They peel it all in one piece, and it's not just oranges, it's any fruit with skin, so apples and pears and things. And I know we all eat the skin now because we know better, but there's a really, I can picture my dad's hands with a carving, like a fruit knife, carving it all off in one piece, always in the same way. And then quite often trying to fit the piece, the peel back together to make a perfectly looking orange so he could hand it to you as a joke. So it's a real Persian thing. And in fact, he still always carries a fruit knife wherever he goes, once even through the airport, trying to help me get on a plane, which was a drama. But yeah, these it's funny how this poem brings up a very specific image, and I'm sure it does for lots of people. It's that kind of ordinariness of something. Are you aware of the tradition that, I think it's Halloween, I'm not sure, where you peel an apple in one piece, so you have the skin, and then you drop the peel over your left shoulder? I think you can tell I've never done this. And when you turn round, the initial of the person you will marry will be revealed. Oh, that must be a British thing. In the US, it's twisting an apple core, holding the core with one hand and twisting the apple and saying the alphabet. And at the moment where the core comes off, that's the letter. Of course, the great amusement is that you do it a hundred times and you get almost all 26 answers. So, you know, you can kind of pull or yank as you wish. It was a great game for young teenage girls. Anyway, back to the poem. I love the kind of ordinariness of it and how some things so ordinary, like peeling an orange or sharing an orange, can remind you that you're happy to exist. You know, it's that kind of real simplicity. And I think as well, the bit that made me smile was the fact that she does share it, but Robert and Dave get quarters and she gets a half. I love that about her. Already, I didn't, that doesn't make me think she's greedy. It makes me think she's a woman I'd like to know. Of course, then, you know, the rest of the day, it was quite easy. We picture a kind of, we end up with a picture of her as someone who's looking after herself, which is really nice. Yeah, and it manages to rhyme. It's one of the first poems I'd encountered in Britain, strangely, by British poet. I remember thinking, wow, they do things differently over here. The lines are slightly long and yeah, it doesn't necessarily have that same rhythm, but it's funny. It's really funny and humorous and also managed to be kind of apt and deep all at the same time, which is what I love about her work. A nice way to start today, I think. Shall we move on to Sophie's writing now? Yeah, great. Orange Peel by Sophie Law. I felt hot, short breath and tickling fur as a wet nose nudged my knee. I traced the outline of the bed with my hands and fumbled for my slippers, my dressing gown, my sunglasses. Millie's wagging tail gently thumped my leg as I followed the sound of her clicking claws on the floorboards. Smells of coffee and burnt toast filled the kitchen and mingled with low, murmuring voices on the radio. It was five years since my sight started to fade and we celebrated it every year. Pseudodoxanthema elasticum, also known as PXE, the doctor had explained. He spat the P out like an apple pip. It's genetic, a disease that skipped and hopped down my family tree before landing on me. The stretchy tissue behind my retina would become pebbly and dimpled like the skin of an orange before cracking like a hard-boiled egg. Peau d'orange was the medical term he used. It sounded like a delicious French dessert. I imagined my eyes as two satsumas peering at the world. I thought maybe I could peel one and eat a segment if I was ever hungry. The thought was so ridiculous that I almost snorted with laughter in front of the doctor. 
Then I felt sad for even finding it funny. I first noticed it on my way home from an evening of drinking wine with a friend. The sun was setting on a summer evening and the air seemed to fizz. I glanced at the telegraph wires above my head which looked warped and bent. They pounded like a heartbeat no matter which way I twisted my head. I thought I was just drunk. The following morning the glass on the window looked as if it was dancing like the heat that rises off a hot car. I burst into tears and buried my head on Jack's chest. When I began to lose my sight I was sad for a week. I lay in bed sloshing around in my thoughts which settled heavy in my mind like silt. I had gone to university, got a job, moved to London and then back again, travelled the world. I'd had boyfriends and had sex and bought nice things for my house. I'd been trundling along with my life and now I was going blind. Jack let me have that one week of feeling sorry for myself and then told me, Enough. You're turning into a miserable old git, he said, and I agreed. I told him what a pathetic cow I was and asked how he could ever love someone who was blind. He laughed at me and I laughed too. The next morning, Jack bought champagne, pasta, crusty bread and olives and laid on a spread. We're going to make this a happy day from now on. A new chapter, he said, matter-of-factly. We stayed up late on that balmy summer evening and smoked cigarettes, cackling like magpies. Jack was stoic about it. He sorted everything for me. Appointments, checkups meetings with the blind organisation. We downsized to a ground floor flat close to shops and parks and with a little garden. He wouldn't let me lift any of our belongings, which he huffed and clunked downstairs in armfuls and piled on the pavement. I'm going to take care of this, he said, behind rattling cardboard boxes of crockery and saucepans. I felt like we were in a ridiculous, romantic movie. I'll stop there just for a moment. Already I have such kind of admiration for the idea that she's sort of only sad for a week and is willing to call herself a pathetic cow for feeling sad for a week for losing her vision. That's much bigger than I would be. And right at the end of that very first paragraph where we celebrated it every year, there's certainly no sense of allowing herself to wallow, as it were, or look back and express regret it's the whole thing feels like it's moving forward all the time i think that's an incredibly powerful idea that you would celebrate something that happens that's that you there's no other way to paint but negative it's not like you know people who celebrate their divorce or celebrate the life of someone who passed away on a particular day because they were in pain or whatever you know they choose to flip that and turn it into something positive i don't know how you could celebrate the loss of your sight And I don't mean that as a questioning that motive or that decision. It's in all, really, that I think how you could be a strong enough person to celebrate something like that. There's a real sense of power, though, isn't there, in making that decision, saying, "Okay, there's not much I can do about this. This is happening to me. What can I do? And that sort of wrestling back of some sort of sense of control and ability to make decisions about things. I'm not sure if it's the fact that the pieces that we asked our writers to write for Unbound to be relatively short or whether the time frame of of this happening for Sophie was 
really short, but there seems something for me really shocking in that bit where she talks about first noticing on the way back from drinking wine with a friend and then the following morning bursting into tears. There's a real sense of her realisation. So this must have happened before she went to see the doctor. It must have been this that prompted her to go and see the doctor, I think. Yeah, I think that you're right. I think the timing flips around, doesn't it? And I'm not sure I would have been brave enough to take that to the doctor straight away. I think I might have sat with it for a while, assuming I'd got something in my eye or I was a bit tired. Well, I wonder, because it does say something about it being genetic, doesn't it? And jumping down the family tree and I wondered if you you know if you had enough relatives who had been blind or had lost their sight whether you would think start to put connections together yeah that makes sense and then Jack the character that we're told about is quite a strong I mean I can't work out what I think of him yet because so far what we've got of him is him saying enough which I think is a really strong thing to do to not allow someone to be in that space of grief and you're turning into a miserable old kit seems quite strong. But again, I think it probably, I hope, what I hope is that it says more about their relationship and the kind of comfort and him knowing what's best for her. Yeah, I was just going to say that gave me a real sense of how well he must know her to be able to do that. And I suppose he's right because she then says, I told him what a pathetic cow I was. You know, so rather than saying, hang on, you've just called me a miserable old git and a week ago I've been told I've only started to lose my sight. She's responded in kind saying, yeah, you're right, I am turning into a you know, pathetic person. And this idea that he's going to turn it into a happy thing is a really strange one. I suppose, though, in a way, that's where the choice comes, isn't it? There's the choice to mourn the loss of sight and grieve. And then there's the choice to almost say, stuff you world, you know, we're going to do this. And again, I think that is a real reflection on their personalities as a couple, that they choose the second of those options. And the idea that you could be cackling like magpies, you know, a week after you started to lose your sight is terrific. And it gives you a real hope that in the face of things, people do manage to find light and laughter, whereas, you know, I would probably... Well, I don't have that much confidence in my ability to turn that situation around, but you never know until you're there, right? Yeah, I think that's the really difficult thing about this story is absolutely feel empathy with what's happening but actually truly understand how it was felt not having had the experience feels a really difficult thing to do it does make you try and think how would I feel what would I do would I be able to do this having not actually gone through this experience it's, it's impossible to know I think, well, I certainly don't give myself credit for the strength that I have quite often because I think well, if that happened to me, I just wouldn't, I would fall apart. But actually when bad things happen, I don't. So, you know, I think we often don't know what we're going to be capable of until we, we do it. Shall we read on? Yeah, let's find out what happens. Months word passed and my vision faded bit by bit. My eyes were speckled with cloudy spots like a greasy smudge left on a window. Shapes and colours blurred together. It grew worse in my left eye, and so doctors gave me a patch to wear. I put it on in the bathroom mirror with Jack by my side. I look like a pound shop pirate, I sighed. Jack bought a matching one from the local fancy dress shop and put it on as a surprise. We laughed so much we cried. Reassurance washed over my body and tingled my cheeks. Two swashbucklers. We decided to go to a restaurant, our favourite French bistro with the red and white checkered tablecloths. It was the first time I tried to use my white stick, 
and I muddled it along the pavement, clumsy and cloddish. I can't do this, I said to Jack. He took the stick without a word and folded it away in his coat, hooked his arm firmly in mine and walked me down the road. The waitress seated us at our usual table. As I fumbled off my coat and scarf, my cutlery clattered to the floor. I reached out to grab it, but my head thudded against the table of the couple next to us, and it was as if the bustling restaurant fell to a hush so diners could get a look at this silly, blundering woman. I felt their blurry pink faces watching me. My cheeks were pepper hot and my throat vinegar sharp. I searched for my dark glasses before shoving them on my face. Can we swap, please? I hissed at Jack through clamped teeth. He tried to calm me down by reaching for my hand. Everyone is looking at me, I said, my voice crackling with tears. Jack got up and we switched places. We ate our rabbit stew in silence as I worked out how I was going to adapt to the world I thought I had known so well. Doctors injected me with yellow dye that whooshed through my veins and into my eyes. It made my skin look like I had a very bad fake tan. As a last resort, they stuck a long needle into my retina and I silently screamed that I would never put myself through this again. Enough, I told Jack. Then we got Millie and life made sense. Before her, I was frightened, pinballing my way through the dark. She guided me to the shops and sat pressed to my leg while I drank my coffee. She became my eyes. When I got home, I would slip off her fluorescent harness and we would curl up on the sofa, a puddle of unbreakable love. I heard Jack padding through to the kitchen. Happy eye day, he said, kissing me on the head as Millie whimpered in excitement. We celebrated it every year. Gosh, I find myself getting quite emotional at the end of that story. I think what's so sad for me in this part of the story is that they go to the place that they think they know. You know, they go to the restaurant they know and they sit at the table that they always sit at. So something, you know, that you ought to be able to do with your eyes closed, as, it, as we all say all the time. And yet she discovers she can't do it without banging her head and brushing the cutlery. It's that kind of recognizing that the world has really shifted. Even the things you thought were going to be okay, the things you thought you could do in, as a routine aren't going to be possible or aren't going to be the same at the very least. And that makes me feel sad, I guess, but also maybe it explains a celebration as a kind of, kind of starting again, a kind of a new chapter as he describes it, right? This is just a new way of doing things. We've got to change things. We don't get to have the old the way we knew it. Yeah, and I, I recognise that experience from when I had knee surgery a couple of years ago and it's completely different because I knew it would pass and get better. But just that sense of getting to a stage where I was confident on my crutches and I was allowed to go out for a bit after about six weeks or so of being at home and going to a coffee shop and it just being a bit of an unmitigated disaster you know there was nowhere to put the crutches so they were taken away from me and put at the other side which meant that I had to ask for them back to go to the toilet which was quite humiliating and then someone helping me with the chair and actually shoving 
it a little bit too hard and falling backwards and just about falling off the seat and knocking a glass off onto the floor and you know so there was for me there was a little bit of recognition and as I say it was a very temporary situation for me but that feeling of cheeks being pepper hot just my I actually blushed when I read that remembering my own experience and thinking of that time where you just feel so self-conscious. Well yeah and I remember that stage for you too. One of the things I really liked hearing about at the end of the story is something that I've always wondered about, which is what happens to working dogs when they get home. Because I don't know about you, Claire, but my kids were always making beelines for working dogs when they were little, because it's very hard to keep little people away from dogs. And we're always having to explain that the dog's working and you're not allowed to pet the dog, which is understandable. But then I always wonder, does it, when is the dog off duty? You know, when does, and what happens to the dog? What's the relationship with the dog and the master like? when the dog isn't working or is the dog always working at home? I didn't know. So it's lovely to hear that, you know, when the harness is off, it's a different sort of friendship. And the other bit I really loved is when she says enough. It's just before that section about the dog, you know, where she is going through various medical procedures and then comes the point where she says, okay, enough. And that felt a really sort of powerful statement and a real sort of taking back sort of step on the road to as she describes it making life make sense it's the way you were describing it earlier that idea of taking control back somehow of you know when you can make decisions you know and we hear about this or the way that i know about this is a kind of end of life for individuals when they make decisions about the end of treatment that they've had enough you know they want to finish with a sort of medicalization of whatever it is and just just be for whatever period of time they've got left but so it felt like that kind of thing like the balance for her was off kilter finally and that she was going to as you say kind of taking back some kind of weight or ability or control of the situation and it doesn't end badly which is really lovely you know that in fact it's just a new way of being and then it becomes that final sentence we celebrated every year when we read it at the end of the piece it for me it makes perfect sense in a way that when that statement was made at the very beginning of the story you thought how can you possibly celebrate Well, it's a good uh, kind of admonition to us all, isn't it? To find the things that we find hard and think, how would we celebrate that? And maybe it's, you know, celebrating overcoming it or celebrating acknowledging it or accepting it. It makes me think of that Elliot line, you know, every beginning is an end and every end is a beginning. No matter what it is, it's an opportunity to do something differently or it's, you know, it opens a different door. I I remember working with one of our groups at Mary Hill on the idea of doors opening. I knew when someone said, well, in in Britain, we say when one door closes, another opens. But one of the women said, oh, no, no. But in the Quran, it says when God closes one door, he opens a thousand others, which was um, really a lovely thing to think about. And every time I think about that image, now I think of her image, which is, no, it's multiplied by a thousand. It's much more than we expect. And I I think we get that sense here at the end of the story that something, something has opened. Thank you, Sophie, for that. Really enjoyed the story, enjoyed chatting about it this morning. Shall I move on to the Edwin Muir poem that Sophie picked out to go with her story? Yeah, that would be, yeah, you read it. A birthday. I never felt so much since I have felt at all the tingling smell and touch of dog rose and sweet briar. Nettles against the wall, all sours and sweets that grow together or apart in hedge or marsh or ditch. I gather to my heart, beast, insect, flower, earth, water, fire, in absolute desire as 50 years ago. Acceptance, gratitude, the first look and the last when all between has passed 
restore ingenuous good that seeks no personal end nor strives to mar or mend. Before I touched the food, sweetness ensnared my tongue. Before I saw the wood, I loved each nook and bend, the track going right and wrong. Before I took the road, direction ravished my soul. Now that I can discern it whole or almost whole, acceptance and gratitude like travellers return and stand where they first stood. Wow, that's one big poem, isn't it? Wow, yeah. Shall we chunk it up? Because I think it's quite dense. And it, for me, it really changes. It's, you might not have heard that, but it, it's in two stanzas. And it really changes for me from the first to the second stanza. So for me, that first stanza is about in the 50th year, going back to kind of what we now very commonly talk about as kind of mindfulness or really being present back in those sort of tingling smell and touch of very specific things. Really sort of contrasting things. So dog rose and briar are are quite sort of spiky from memory. Thorny plants and nettles are quite stingy as it were. And gathering them that those stingy things along with the nice things to your heart in absolute desire as 50 years ago makes me think that you know in those 50 years you know when a a little child doesn't necessarily discern a a slug from a snail or a prickly flower from a I don't know one that isn't you know a little children are interested in everything and it's only through kind of trial and error and also discernment our influence that we explain that one is better than the other or one is nicer than the other or we prefer one so the beginning of this poem makes me think he's he now in it 50 years later is now back to gathering them all to his heart you know no matter where they fall in that kind of spectrum of desirability and i think there's a there's a sense of finding the good in everything as well as the the mindfulness that even in the stinging nettle there's good to be found so that sentiment i agree that sentiment really jives with the, the story for me that idea that there is there is something the good and the bad as you lay them all together as a kind of the richness of the tapestry of what we're dealing with is the joy that if it were all summer raspberries all year long they wouldn't be joyful it's the contrast of them with everything else that makes us have a very rich experience but then you know the second stanza which is a lot longer sort of deepens that somehow that he's somehow able to then anticipate that goodness I mean, before he touches the food he can taste it sweetness and ensnares his tongue but that comes from the experience of the last 50 years doesn't it so you can only, I think, anticipate something if you've known it before and recall it. So it's almost like for me, the first stanza is laying the foundations and the memories and the experience that then allows him to have the second acceptance and gratitude. You're right. But again, at the end of that stanza, it comes back to that, what I was saying earlier for me. It's that kind of he's somehow coming back to the kind of childhood sense of acceptance and gratitude without comment, without making a judgment you know, now that I can discern it whole or almost whole, acceptance and gratitude return. The fact it can be almost whole, it doesn't need to be complete or absolutely perfect for him to have that positive experience. Yeah, you're right. I hadn't twigged that. Well, and also I was thinking, he can't be that old. I mean, I'm coming up for 50. Surely it's not all over yet. <laughs> you know, so I was thinking, huh, what does he know that I don't know about turning 50? But I love that that almost whole, that, you know, it doesn't take to be 90 
and then kind of look at your life and take it all in. That we can maybe we can shortcut or short circuit that sense of wisdom. But I think by the time you're 50, you well, I don't know, I'm not there yet. But I suspect by the time I'm 50, which you know, if you're listening, is not far away, you'll have had that real mix of successes and failures and come back from those failures and maybe realize that they're not so important that you know the, the sort of highs and lows do eventually just kind of even out in a way that when you're you know certainly for my teenagers when something goes wrong it goes terribly wrong because they haven't had that experience of getting through it and coming out the other side and a year later it seems like quite a small thing so yeah maybe by the time he's 50 he's getting you get you get at least some perspective which we we haven't had and there's a real sense of his personal contentment i think that comes through he's not striving for things that he hasn't yet done he doesn't there's not there doesn't feel like there's a sense of a bucket list that he has to achieve at 50 he's happy with what he has he's happy with the experiences that he's having and how they relate back to his earlier experiences and there's a real sense as i say of contentment it makes me think of a workshop I ran for Open Book, looking at Linda's commissioned piece about taking a walk that we've discussed on this podcast. And in the workshop, we looked at Thomas A. Clarke's poem about taking a walk. It's an extremely long poem, which is why we didn't read it as part of the podcast. But and it's in and of itself, it's about it's a kind of a walk. It extols this idea of not walking for a purpose, not walking. And I, and I think that's sort of what Muir is saying about going through life, that actually it's walking without purpose that matters, the kind of observing. And the line that s- sticks with me is that walking is a form of waiting, that in fact, it's not about getting somewhere. And somehow that jives with this poem for me, that idea that it's about observing and accepting and being grateful. It's not about striving and wanting more. That line of not striving to mar or mend something, that you're not seeking a personal end, really links in some way with that Thomas A. Clarke poem about, you know, finding yourself in while you're not looking, which is really terrific. I wonder if you have to wait till you're 50. <laughs> well, I was going to say that just what you're saying there, I remember I grew up on the beach on the northeast coast of Scotland. And one of the things that my mum in particular loved to do was to go for a walk along the beach. And as a child, and particularly as a teenager, it just used to drive me insane. Because there was what was the point of just walking along the beach and walking back for no purpose? I just really struggled to get my head round why you would ever do that. And now, of course, I can see the absolute joy and pleasure of doing that and having that experience and that time and, and just being out in nature and all those things that were tried to be explained to me as a teenager. And I was just like, no, I don't mind walking somewhere. I'll walk to the shops to get a pint of milk. But I don't see the point in walking somewhere and then just walking back again. And that sort of reminds me, just what you were talking about, the Thomas A. Clarke poem and this poem reminds me a little bit of that sensation of the passing of the time in contentment. And maybe it's that the more things change, the more they stay the same, because my teens are the same. We'll go on a journey because they are looking at the end. Whereas now, for me, it's not about that at all. I don't really mind if we end up where we say we're going to end up. But then I am approaching 50, so maybe Muir's right. Maybe it takes that long to have acceptance and gratitude. Um, And the idea of like travellers returning to stand where we first stood as young people or as new people to the world, taking everything in just on par. It's a really nice idea. And I wonder again if Sophie chose it because that's a different way of coming back to something. You know, when when you experience, I mean, I don't know what it would be like. Obviously, we've discussed it. What it would be like to lose your sight, but it's that kind of coming back to something in a different way and looking at it in a different context, finding your own way through. But certainly the words acceptance and gratitude link for me with her story. Yeah, I was just going to say it was, it was a lovely match. 
I think that's all from us this week. Thanks so much for having us in your ears. If you want to find um, more on the commissions or other materials, you can find us at openbookreading.com where you'll find all the Unbound newsletters and the podcasts and things. But we hope to be back in your ears again soon. Thanks for joining us.